Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, right here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting to you from here in the historic Hayburn Building at 106.5 FM, but we also live stream to the world. You can catch us anywhere you are today at forwardradio.org. There's our live stream there and podcasts of our programs available as well. If you ever hear something on the station that you want to share with somebody, go to forwardradio.org. You'll probably find a link to it that you can share out via social media or however you want. Uh, well, what we do here on the show each week is bring in folks to the studio, sometimes a virtual studio like we're doing today, for a conversation about all things sustainability. And uh, today, uh, yeah, we're going to focus on the greatest crisis facing humanity. But, but... We're not going to focus on it in a way that is uh, either deer in the headlights, oh my God, what do we do? It's too big a problem. Or we're not going to focus on the doom and gloom because there is a lot to be sad about. But there's a new, uh, well, about a year old book out called Beyond Carbon Neutral, How We Fix the Climate Crisis Now. And I love having on Sustainability Now, the author of that book. I want to welcome into the virtual studio, Samuel Goodman. Welcome, Samuel. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, where are you joining us from today? I'm calling you from my uh, house uh, just outside Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway, if you've ever heard that term. Oh, yes. I, I grew up in Arlington, so I know all about it. Yeah. Well, welcome to Louisville and the program. Uh, Sam Goodman is a Wisconsin native who made the jump over to Northern Virginia after completing his Ph.D. in chemical engineering at UC Boulder. Uh, since leaving the laboratory, Dr. Goodman has worked at the intersection of science and public policy. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And he's long been committed to studying ways of mitigating climate change from researching novel solar cell materials, to, and I'm going to ask you about that one, to uh, completing this uh, book on a complete solution to the crisis. So I'm really excited to have you with us, Samuel, and, and talk about some of these things. This, this program's all focused on what we can do. Every one of us can do something every day, I think, to address all of these challenges in sustainability. And I love how your book sort of pulls it all together it takes this really overwhelming global crisis and breaks it down for us into digestible pieces and says look people here's what we need to do right and i think that's so valuable and so important for us to have right now i'm sure you encounter people all the time who like climate change oh and they kind of their eyes roll like i don't even want to start thinking about that but i really value this work you've done to help us start uh, have you received good feedback about the book in that way yeah, I have. And and thank you for those those kind words. I really do appreciate it. And that kind of response, the, you know, the just wanting to get away from it, frustrated with it, <laughs> you don't know what to do. So you just disconnect and tune out and just try to avoid the problem that happens quite a lot. And it's really a major problem because that's not how we're ultimately going to solve the problem. You can't tune out and just give into, you know, whatever's going to happen, give into some of that nihilism, because ultimately, it is a solvable problem. It is still solvable. And that's really the message I was trying to get out in the book is we have these tools available to us. I we know. just need to do it. And <laughs> here's how we can make that happen if we have the willpower to do it. Oh, absolutely. It's all about will. It's all about, uh, in a way, it's, it's a very political question, too, uh, how we overcome these entrenched interests in fossil fuels. Uh 
But then you also tackle wonderful things like the sort of psychology of it, the denialism. I wanted to start asking you about that because you start your book talking about the persistence of denialism, even in the face of just increasingly obvious changes in the climate. We've seen it right here in Kentucky uh, just past December with the tornadoes and then more recently with the floods in Appalachia. I mean, how big a factor do you think is denialism in our continued lack of action and lack of urgency? I think it's definitely up there and it's kind of intermixed quite a bit with other reasons for an action, uh, if I can explain that a little bit. So you have like the on the ground denialism, like we've had these recent natural disasters and they go out and talk to these people, they've lost their homes. I know the flooding in Appalachia was just utterly devastating yeah. and now we have the hurricane down in Florida Right, and they talk to these homeowners like, well, what are you going to do? Well, I guess I'm just going to rebuild again <laughs> because they don't necessarily really have any options. Um, and the market really may the even push them to do so, right? Right. They don't have the means to really get out of harm's way. So you can't really do much else in that situation beyond mm -hmm. just denying the problem because it seems hopeless to deal with. And that's a fundamental problem because, you know, those are critical constituencies. We can't leave anybody behind as we're dealing with this problem. Yeah. And, you know, having people disengage from the process means they're not necessarily going to have their needs attended to. And that's a major problem. The other part of it is there is a substantial material interest in keeping the status quo. So let's right. say you own a coal mine, for example, you have your personal fortune tied to continue to deny the problem. And people are very good at justifying things to themselves and conflating their personal interest with, you know, the wider good for the world. So it's that kind of situation that drives denialism as well, because you don't want to cut off your golden goose, so to speak, <laughs> even if in the long run, it's doing you no favors to do so, because it's just a matter of psychology. People tend to be short-sighted. They see what's immediately in front of them. And tackling a worldwide issue is, it's hard to get your mind around. Like we're innately not able to take stock of a lot of the numbers that we're talking about. Like conceptualizing a billion of anything is <laughs> almost impossible. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm a, a scientist engineer. I deal with numbers over all the time. And like, I still have no good real frame of reference for what a billion of anything looks like. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough problem to overcome a lot of these mental hurdles to really get to a place where you can think it through and start to address the problem. Well, and let's not forget that denialism was and has been a strategy. It has been intentionally foisted on us in the media and uh, with, you know, the whole fake news scenario. But from the very beginning, the, the fossil fuel companies had evidence about where things were headed if, if their business model was successful and uh, everybody stuck their head in the sand or, or tried to hide it. So it's no surprise then that that continues to affect us, right? Right. And you have like, that's like two, that's a great bifurcation in how mm. to talk about denialism. You have the active malicious denialism yeah, yes. <laughs> where you know it's a problem, but you still want to, you know, maintain your profits and mm -hmm. continue to make money. So you start to push these narratives that cause denialism and other people who may not have a malicious intent, but nonetheless still wind up with that mindset. Mm -hmm. All right. So you say quite plainly in your book that we still have time to keep the door from closing on our future. In a nutshell, could you explain why you're so convinced of that? Why do we still have time? I think I would look back at the most recent like IPCC reports. So these big multiple thousand page long reports that do all kinds of modeling about different scenarios that are 
potentially going to happen. And we are going to hit warming. We are hitting yeah. warming right now. Right. And even if we perfectly transitioned, there's still a lot of inertia where we would see that going forward. Mm. But it wouldn't be warming to the level where it's an absolute catastrophe. There are other scenarios where they look at it where we not only not stop fossil fuel burning, but we ramp it up. And we're looking at instead of maybe one and a half to two degrees of warming, like eight degrees Celsius of warming. Wow. And that's basically we're done. There's no hope at that point. Mm -hmm. But we're not on that trajectory yet. And we still have time to influence and get us further away from that. And the further we are away from that, the easier it is to adapt. And using all our technology and our skills, we can still make a survivable world where our standard of living doesn't necessarily have to drop that much, where we can survive and don't have to go through all these attendant sociological catastrophes that go along with the hurricanes and floodings and the droughts and things like that. So that's what I mean. We still have time to get us on a better track. Not perfect, mm. but something that's survivable. I think that's a really important point, and it's it's an important way to frame this whole conversation. This is all about how we create less suffering in the future. There's no doubt that there's a certain amount of suffering baked into what's already happened. But the sooner we take action and the more progressive our action is, the bigger the biggest st steps we take, the quicker we'll be able to get ourselves to a survivable world and to reduce the, the more we'll be able to reduce the amount of suffering. And, and in a sense, that's why it's really important to focus on some of the big things and not let ourselves get distracted by smaller changes, which may be worth making, but honestly, aren't what we really need to change, right? There's a lot of focus right. on those little things. Right. And I really like the way you phrase that. We're trying to reduce suffering because ultimately we're all going to be paying for the price because of climate change, whether that's hitting you directly because of you know, a flood just washed away your house or you're somewhere else in the country and you can't get enough food because the bread basket is in the middle right, of a drought. Right. We're all affected by this. And exactly what you said, if we deal with it now, we can reduce that amount of suffering. We're yeah. all going to suffer. Yeah. You know, I've been reflecting on some of the lessons of the pandemic, especially in 2020. It was so shocking to me how quickly we sort of turned on a dime in society. Now, some would argue it wasn't fast enough, it wasn't radical enough to prevent a lot of suffering. Surely there is a good argument there that in a lot of ways that's similar to climate change. We didn't act fast enough and we didn't go far enough. But still, like there was suddenly behaviors were radically changed. And that's exactly what we need. And priorities, government priorities and spending and policies were suddenly radically changed to address this common crisis. And to me, that's a lesson of hope. As, as problematic as our ability to address the pandemic has been, I think it's a lesson of hope that we can change in the face of a global crisis, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like looking back on it, like it was insane that we had a vaccine in oh, yeah. under a year. Like that is unheard <laughs> of. Like I've, I've taken a course in like how you develop pharmaceuticals and biotechnology and that's always on a 10 year horizon right, a decade at best. And yeah. thankfully we had people who were doing like the underlying science for the approach that went into it. But still that is absolutely mind boggling. Right. And couple that with the disruptions to global supply chains. Right, right. Yeah. And so we also have lessons from the pandemic about what can happen with a global crisis like climate change when we suddenly go to the grocery store and there's 
things that aren't on the shelf. I think nobody in America had ever experienced that since the Great Depression, right? Uh, if any of those people are still around to remind us, right? And so I just still see there's pr so many lessons from the pandemic that we can take away going forward about to help move us on climate change. I think it was kind of well-timed in a way. Uh, but so this is all very weighty stuff. <laughs> it's, about, it's an existential crisis. And yet you point out that our true enemy here is despair, right? Like, this is no time for us to throw up our hands. That is the real problem, right? Absolutely. Because once you give in to despair, then you're not going to resolve your problems or do better for yourself or the community or the country or the world. And that's the frustrating thing to push against because we do have all these tools. Yeah. We have the ability to generate renewable power. We have the ability to store energy. We have the ability to sequester carbon. And all that standing in our way is putting in the effort to make the political system work to actually get those things done. And people who are despair, they don't vote. They don't get engaged politically. You can't build that movement. Right. So you're trying to essentially cross an impossible gap once people disengage and give in to despair. Well, let's dive into these rays of hope that I think you point out in Beyond Carbon Neutral, How We Fix the Climate Crisis Now. I love how you structured the book very simply. It speaks to my Quaker simplicity, I think. <laughs> There's a whole first part about infrastructure. Like, look, this is what we need to power our, ourselves without fossil fuels. And then there's a whole section, part two, on drawdown. This is how we need to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And then a final section on society. This is what we need to do in terms of the economy, policy, uh, and individuals and collective action. And that, I think that's so helpful. So let's, let's dive into this. Um, there is a lot of talk right now about electrifying the world, especially vehicles and transportation, right? And I just love how in chapter one you make clear that electrification must not be our first step, because a lot of people seem to want to do it right now, but rather we need to focus on expanding renewable power and that we don't need to wait for more R&D to make that transition. We, we have the technology, right? Absolutely. And it's a diverse technology, which is what sustainability demands of us, right? There's not just one silver bullet here, right? And so putting all this energy into like, well, let's just turn all these vehicles driving by us here on Broadway into electric vehicles. Well, we're just replacing gas-powered vehicles with natural gas and coal-powered vehicles, right? Yeah, that is the primary concern with electrification is if you still pulling electricity from a coal-fired or a natural gas power plant. It may be a little more efficient in aggregate, but you're not really solving the root cause of the problem. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those technologies. You know, some of them we've known for a long time. Others are maybe a little less familiar. Some of them might be really unfamiliar to people in Louisville. Why don't you run through some of the ways we could be powering ourselves without fossil fuels? Absolutely. And the way to think about all these things is, you know, you have different tools in your toolbox. You have yeah. a hammer, you have a screwdriver. They're for different purposes and they fit in and allow you to do different things. So it's not an either or with any of these technologies. It's a where does this make the most sense in terms of an integrated grid? Right. You don't want to drop something in where it's not going to do any good. And you want to make sure that they're all connected so that they balance out their strengths and weaknesses. So we have a whole sustainable infrastructure. And we can start off with the big ones, the two that everybody knows about, your solar power and your wind power. They're visible. You see solar panels on roofs. Even around here, you drive through the neighborhoods. People have more solar panels on their roofs. You see uh, fields filled with them. And then, you know, growing up and 
then driving out to Colorado, we see these, you know, massive wind farms start to grow on either side of the interstate. So they're very visible and they're very useful forms of power because we get a ton of energy from the sun. Mm-hmm. More than we I could think, ever use. <laughs> oh, yeah. We could get enough energy from the sun in an hour to power our civilization for a year if we captured all of it that hit the Earth. Right. We just need to tap into a fraction of that. But not every location is ideally suited for solar power. Right. Growing up in Wisconsin, you know, we have very long winters where relatively short days. So you get a lot less out over the course of a year from your solar panel versus somewhere like Arizona, where right. you have almost constantly sunny days, very intense sunlight. So it makes more sense to invest solar in those areas where you get the most bang for your buck out of installing the solar panels. Uh, same thing with wind. You know, not a lot of wind in my home state of Wisconsin, but out in the Great Plains, um, that's why they've built them out there or offshore like they do a lot Mm -hmm. in Europe Mm -hmm. because the wind is stronger offshore. You can build them bigger. You can get a lot more power and they're next to population centers. So those are two, you know, really good foundational options. Their primary limitation is that the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So you still need to diversify the grid beyond that. And There's a couple other ones, you know, hydropower is a big one, but Mm -hmm. we're actually kind of tapped out in terms of hydropower at the moment. Uh, The New Deal was really good at Mm. plucking all the low-hanging fruit for that. And now a lot Um, of those rivers are drying up. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a bit of a tangent, but that's a major thing that's happened in Europe this year is they've had to shut down a lot of industry because hydropower just isn't there for heavy industry like metal refining, which Mm. is pretty substantial disruption. But so we can't rely on expanding that too much. Um, The other big one that isn't always, you know, available everywhere is geothermal power. And that's pretty much a nice drop in replacement for your coal or your natural gas, because you're essentially extracting heat from within the earth. Doesn't matter what the sun's doing. Doesn't matter what the wind's doing. You can run that whenever you need it, 24 hours a day. So you don't need any kind of energy storage technology like the batteries that they've started to install next to a lot of wind farms or solar farms. Um, There's a couple other ways of storing energy that are a little more scalable than uh, batteries that you can use to round out the grid. Yeah, I do want to ask you about that later, but just keep going on the other sources, yeah. Yeah, and then to just kind of round out the introduction, you need something that can uh, store energy across seasons Mm -hmm. because solar power, it varies day to day. It also varies uh, between July and January. You know, you get a lot less intense sunlight over the winter than you do in the summer. So you need something that can also balance that out and there are a couple sources of uh, renewable fuels, basically things you burn and, yeah. and can drop into our standard power grid. You stockpile them in the summer, you burn them over the winter, and you can keep everything in balance all year round. My guest today here on Sustainability Now is Samuel Goodman. He is joining us from Northern Virginia, author of the book that came out in April of 21, Beyond Carbon Neutral, How We Fix the Climate Crisis Now. I am so excited to have him on the program and to share with you this important work because it really does provide hope, I think, for how we can address this. You also talk, so those are some of the like ways we can power the future, and we will dive into more of that in a minute. But you also point out that one of our goals has to be to pull carbon out of the atmosphere if we want to return to the climate conditions that allowed civilization to develop in the first place. I think it's been so long we've all forgotten that, but would you take a minute and just talk to us about, remind us of the role of climate in, in human civilization history? 
Yeah, it's something that we just kind of take for granted that <laughs> things were stable before we got here and then we built our industrial civilization and now we're just causing these fluctuations. But in reality, the climate has its natural cycles. So we were actually developing in a window that started about 8,000 years ago that really allowed agriculture to allow permanent uh, settlements and civilization. Yeah. And then all the innovation that uh, sprang forward from that following the end of the last ice age. And really we want to be in that sweet spot where we mm. have, you know, widespread agriculture viable across most of the world. We have you know, bread baskets in Asia, Europe, big one and throughout the Great Plains in the United States, because the way the climate is really determines where we can grow food and where we can place our cities and where the navigable waters are. And the further we get away from those conditions, ultimately, it's going to be costlier to readjust where everything is located and basically how we function hmm. because of that. So again, it's, it's a lot of material to put into a small conversation, but if you could run through some of the some of the bright spots you see for carbon sequestration, for pulling carbon back out of the atmosphere, what do you think is most promising? Yeah, so the most promising, the best bang for your buck is going to be rebuilding wetlands. Mm. So things like swamps and bogs, peat bogs. Um, we actually have data that backs up that, uh, a lot of times these areas were cleared for agriculture, maybe cleared for building, um, generally treated as wastelands because mm. they're kind of smelly and have a lot of mosquitoes that spread disease and really not generally appealing for human interaction. But they sequester a tremendous amount of carbon. They're only they're less than one percent of our total land area, but they sequestered you know, hundreds of times that in terms of uh, mm. how much carbon they're soaking up and locking within their soils just because of the nature of their structure. Um, they're able to hold on to that almost permanently. So when you rebuild these, you can start taking a lot of that carbon out of the atmosphere with a very limited investment in land. Mm. Um, it's many times more effective than planting trees, which is important because you can't have wetlands everywhere. But if you're looking for the lowest hanging fruit, that's what you should rebuild. Huh. Are there projects where that has commenced already? Yeah, there was a series of projects in the Baltic states a couple of oh, years cool. ago. So think Latvia, Lithuania, mm -hmm. Estonia. A lot of those lands were cleared back during the Soviet era. Right. And then with a little bit of earth moving, they were able to redirect water to come back in and essentially rebuild a lot of what was lost. So uh -huh. it is definitely possible. Wow. And then, of course, the technophiles have proposed many sorts of geoengineering solutions for climate change. Uh, you know, maybe they don't all need to be completely dismissed, but what are, what are some of your thoughts about geoengineering? Uh, it's not there yet. Yeah. So the big one you'll see is direct air capture. That's where you have these big machines operating, trying to pull carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere through a big industrial process. Mm -hmm. And really, that's like trying to it's like dissolving half a sugar cube in a gallon of water and then trying to boil that to get enough to bake a cake. <laughs> the energy required is just disproportionate to what you're trying to accomplish. There's no really good industrial scale proof of concept that actually shows that it's even possible to yeah. use that kind of mechanism on a large scale. It's still very much in the testing phase and we got to move fast. So if yeah. it comes up later, you know, if it comes out, there's a, a brand new technique that makes it so much easier, great, we can use it. But mm -hmm. until then, it just doesn't seem viable right now. Mm -hmm. 
And I've also heard people praise agriculture as a potential solution for climate change, even though the way it's practiced by modern industrial nations like ours right now, it's actually contributing to climate change. Uh, do you want to speak a little bit to that, to uh, how we can fix carbon in soils? A little bit, yeah. Uh, the big one is to basically change how we're tilling and our reliance on a lot of these agricultural chemicals. Yeah. Uh, you look at our major crop output is corn, and that requires a tremendous amount of fertilizer because it's a very greedy crop. Unlike soybeans, it doesn't actually fix nitrogen, so you need a ton of inputs yep. per acre. You need a lot of pesticides and to till the soil to make sure that there's nothing interfering with the growth. And there are different techniques. You can use cover cropping. You can use different forms of regenerative agriculture. So instead of depleting the soils and requiring all those inputs, you can change what you're cropping and create a more healthy and more sustainable farming ecosystem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then if we could just briefly touch on the third section of the book about society and policy and the market structure. You know, there's a lot of reasons for despair there, too, but current state of things. But let's focus on the reasons for hope. What are some shining examples of how we could restructure things uh, to really address climate change in a way that is also just, right? Right. Well, I think the thing that gives us a lot of hope is that we've tackled major societal problems before. Hmm. We fully mobilized the country and reworked our entire economy to respond to World War II. Yeah. And that is something we've done. We know something at that scale is possible if we can devote the resources to it. So that's the major point of hope that I would say is that we're not reinventing the wheel. And you made the point earlier, you know, about being deprived about certain things. I was going through some of my grandparents' stuff when I was visiting my parents and found the old ration books oh, wow. from back in the day. So it's not like we're asking people to do something that's impossible for humans to do. Right. We've done it before. Right. Yeah. And hopefully we can do it in a more just way. Um, I mean, we know that climate change will have the most severe impact on the global south. But it will. You, you also point out how the transition to renewables might have that negative impact on the global south, too, given the continued prevalence of extractive economies. So what is to be done about that? How do we address this problem of extractive economies in the global south, transferring wealth from the south to the north, basically, uh, in this transition to more renewables? Yeah, and that's a very thorny question to get into, because mm -hmm. like you, you mentioned, it has to be a just transition. We don't want to leave people behind. And for a practical reason, if we can frame this as a positive step for everyone, right. you're more likely to get more people to buy in. And the larger the movement is, both domestically and globally, the more likely you are to be successful. And because this isn't isolated, carbon emissions in one area of the world affects everybody. Yeah. So we need to bring everybody along with us. And a lot of what happens in the global south is, of course, a legacy, a lot of the colonial past, which was very focused on resource extraction in a lot of these countries. And that's a, a legacy, especially in places like Africa that are uh, still heavily dependent. There's multiple nations that are uh, their primary export is still crude petroleum. Mm. And that's their major revenue source. Mm -hmm. And that's how they need to interact with the global financial system. That's kind yeah. of how they print their money, so to speak. Right. So you have to give them a better option and essentially help them transition. You can't just kick away the ladder of fossil fuels and say, well, no pathway for development for you, because that's ultimately not going to be successful in the long run. You have to give the hand up to allow them 
to have the technology and the means to implement these kinds of renewable technologies. Because consider a country like Chad, it exports a lot of petroleum products. It's a major part of their economy, but they're also in the Sahel region, a very dry area that's very amenable to building solar power. So Mm -hmm. it's changing the kind of resources that they can extract and then provide that as a more technical base to then start moving up the development chain. I think that's the best way to go. And uh, of course we have to deal fairly uh, talking about uh, electric vehicles, a lot of that lithium comes from countries in yeah. South America, have to be dealing fairly with the conditions there so that we're not continuing the a tradition of devastating other countries to benefit ourselves. I don't think that's the way forward. Again, folks, I'm speaking to uh, author Samuel Goodman. Uh, he is joining us from Northern Virginia today uh, here on Sustainability Now, talking about his 2021 book, Beyond Carbon Neutral, How We Fix the Climate Crisis Now. Do you have a website where people can go to learn more information about you, Samuel? Absolutely. Uh, my website is drsamuelgoodman.com. That's D-R-S-A-M-U-E-L-G-O-O-D-M-A-N.com. Excellent. Thank you. Check out drsamuelgoodman.com. Well, in our in our last section of the program here, I want to take a little deeper dive into a couple uh, energy technologies. Uh, one you didn't mention at all, which is nuclear. And that's a big conversation these days, uh, especially as we have things like war in Ukraine, uh, making us all really worried about both the fate of the nuclear power plants there, but also the use of nuclear weapons, which are a result of pursuing nuclear power. Um, And yet there are people like my own father, very passionate about climate change. It's his core issue. And certainly a strong environmentalist who is willing to still consider expansion of nuclear because it is a lower carbon option, but it's highly problematic. And I think you make two great points about nuclear in your book that I really want to highlight for listeners. Uh, First, you say that it should be the last of our legacy plants that we shut down. So let's figure out how to shut down the coal, the natural gas plants first before worrying about the nuclear. I totally agree with that. And I love the argument you made about that. Uh, The second really important point is that we should ditch our Carter-era ban on the practice of reprocessing and reusing spent fuel. I didn't even know there was this ban. Can you dive into nuclear a little bit more in these issues? Yeah. Nuclear, you've mentioned it's a very thorny topic, and the nuclear reprocessing is just part of that. And it goes back to you linked it to nuclear weapons, and absolutely the technology that we based our nuclear reactors on was specifically chosen because that's how you get material to make nuclear weapons. Um, That doesn't necessarily have to be the case going forward, which we might touch on later, but this reprocessing angle, uh, when you have a nuclear reactor to make weapons grade material, you ultimately need to go through some kind of processing step to separate uh, the plutonium from the uranium um, because you want the plutonium because it's better for making weapons. Um, And the Carter era ban essentially banned that process for uh, civilian power plants because compared to something like France, they reprocess almost all of their nuclear fuel because you don't use it all up before you have to take it out and swap out the material from the reactor due to other engineering concerns. But you can, there's still a lot of potential energy that you can get out of the same amount of uranium if you reprocess it, essentially make new nuclear fuel from it. And you can use the same amount of material then for much longer. And that's very helpful because it means you don't have to mine extra material, which is 
it has a lot of environmental consequences. Um, it ultimately results in fewer emissions, fewer energy requirements to get the same amount of fuel going into your nuclear system. And it cuts down on the amount of waste you ultimately produce. It's basically a major resource that's sitting in these pits and ponds next to nuclear reactors that we could reprocess and keep them going for many decades to go at our current burn rate. So that's why I'm a big fan of that. But the stated purpose was to prevent nuclear proliferation, which I don't know if that necessarily made sense then. It doesn't make <laughs> sense now if it's all in a closed ecosystem and France has a half century of doing it safely. Yeah. Yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, the, one of the biggest problems with nuclear, besides the cost of it, which is another big issue we haven't touched too much on, but is this fact that we have waste that we don't know what to do with, that we know is going to remain highly radioactive for tens of thousands of years. I mean, that we, humanity has no history of dealing with anything that problematic. And the more we make of this stuff by failing to reprocess the fuel, uh, the, the more of a headache we're going to have in the future. Future, right right and especially now that like the yucca mountain plan right. that seems to be absolutely dead so there's no real strategy for dealing with this yeah. whereas if you reprocess it you can cut down on the amount of waste and if you are going to do research and try to build new nuclear reactors there are alternative technologies that can take some of that waste and transition it into something that's dangerous still dangerous still radioactive but instead of ten thousand years maybe a hundred years. And yeah. that's a much easier problem to solve. Yeah, exactly. Well, wonderful. I'm glad we spent a little time talking about nuclear because it certainly is part of the conversation. Uh, but I want to turn to your experience in grad school now, which is when you were <laughs> researching these alternative solar cell materials and, and that kind of technology. Can you explain what the current standard is and what exciting options exist for us in solar materials? Well, if you look at there's the couple major players. You have uh, silicon solar cells, which is basically like 95% of the market. You have a little bit of thin film solar cells, which are made of a material called cadmium telluride. Um, they're much rarer elements, so they're a much smaller part of the supply chain. I mean, you can get silicon from sand, which is everywhere. Yeah. Um, in comparison to tellurium, which is rarer than gold. Mm. Um, and then you have a couple other small ones like gallium arsenide or copper indium gallium sulfide, little more exotic ones that are much smaller parts of the market. But your big workhorse is going to be some form of silicon solar cell. And there's been a lot of research, though, in alternative materials. The National Renewable Energy Lab has a big chart that shows several dozen different materials and, you know, their maximum efficiencies. So the category I was working in was quantum dots. And you may be familiar with these if you looked at a new uh, been shopping for a new television, uh, quantum.tv. Huh. Um, they're basically just really, really small crystals um, huh. that have some interesting physics properties and have some implications for solar potential. And the big idea that I worked on first in grad school was what if you linked these small crystals together with a wire at basically the atomic scale? And our idea <laughs> was to use DNA actually to do that. Hmm. Um, didn't exactly result in a, a whole lot of uh, efficient solar cells. I think our, our best one was about 1% efficient at best. Wow. Um, which is well below the almost 30% of your commercial solar cell. So it was more of an exercise in looking at some interesting physics. But yeah. that's that's how research goes. Yeah. You, you're doing research because you don't know the answer, and it may not work, and yeah. you may find something interesting. 
No, and we need that. We definitely need to continue pushing the envelope. But again, the message of your book is we don't need to wait for some magic technology to come along to address this issue. We have the options in front of us now, as you laid out earlier. Uh, and you started to it's, it's almost impossible to have this conversation without starting to talk about energy storage. So let's let's turn our attention to that. Why is this such an important issue for renewables? And why is it much more than just thinking about batteries? Yeah, it's critical. And we actually have a lot of data on this because California has a ton of renewable capacity, but they can't take their fossil fuels completely offline because when you have a solar panel, when you have a wind turbine, they're very powerful during the midpoint of the day and fossil fuel use goes almost to zero. But once that sun sets, man, they ramp right back up. Mm. So you need something that can carry that energy forward from the day into the night. So you can ultimately take all of the fossil fuels offline. And batteries are the big one. That's what's always talked about, what's always in the news, because it's a relatively straightforward technology. We know how to make batteries, but they're material limited. There's only so much lithium that we mine every year. It's actually a, a pretty small amount, all things considered, hmm. only about 100,000 tons really? um, annually. And if you tried to replace both car batteries with lithium to make electric vehicles and grid scale storage, it would take you over 30 years to get both of those things accomplished. Wow. We need to move a lot faster than that. So that's why in the book, I make the case, if we're going to do batteries, put them in cars because there's no other option for electrifying them really to make an electric vehicle. And then we can look at alternatives for grid scale storage. And there are multiple alternatives for that. Yeah. What what are some of those things that are non-battery solutions for energy storage? I think most of our listeners would be fascinated to learn and probably not very familiar with them. Well, the first one is something we've been doing for decades, actually, which is called pumped hydropower. Mm -hmm. And basically, when you have a dam on a river, uh, you create this reservoir and the action of gravity pulling that water down spins a turbine and generates electricity. And a pumped reservoir is basically doing that artificially. You have a lower reservoir and then a higher one that's at a greater elevation. Mm -hmm. And during the day when you have a lot of energy on the grid, you use the pumps to move water from the lower reservoir to the upper one. And then when you need energy, you let gravity bring it back down from the upper one to the lower one and power a turbine. And we have some pretty massive ones. Mm. Uh, there's one out here on the East Coast that uh, has most of our country's energy storage capacity, actually, because wow. it's a, a massive system. Really? I didn't know about that. And and basically no environmental impact to this, right? Not really. I mean, it's going to take up some land for the for the system, but... It, it'll it, take up some land, but you want to design it in a location that is already amenable to that kind of structure, where right. you have you know, a pretty substantial elevation change because you can't really get your way doing it by building a bunch of water towers. It has to be some right. natural land formation to do it. Hmm. But where it, it's effective, it's a pretty cost-effective way of getting a whole lot of energy storage pretty quickly. Makes Just thinking about it at a large scale, I'm always, is, would this even tie back into the idea of recreating wetlands? Uh, but I, I guess if you've got an industrial use for it, maybe it's not always a perfect idea. <laughs> Interesting. What are what are some other options besides the water pumping? Yeah, another one that has been going on, there's a facility down south um, that does this a similar thing, only using air. Oh. Essentially, they converted an old abandoned salt mine into a pressure vessel. So when there's energy, excess energy on the grid, 
they can pump air underground and pump it to high pressure. And you know, like if you release a tire, something under high pressure, you just pop the valve, it wants to go back out to the atmosphere, and you can recapture that energy back when you need it. Huh. So you can do that geologically, but are there ways to create it industrially too? Um, Probably not at the scale we need. You, <laughs> you could, but you run into the scale problem again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the engineer in me, whenever you try to talk about massive <laughs> amounts of pressure vessels, you're like, oh man, the cost is going to be tremendous. <laughs> not to mention the potential explosions. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely yeah. something you want to avoid. Wow. Um, Interesting. So those are good examples of using resources that otherwise aren't necessarily being used for, you know, free energy storage. And yeah. it's not going to be available anywhere, but it's low hanging fruit that we can pluck. Yeah. Well, this has been great. We're nearing the end of our time and I want to give you a little time to do a reading at the end too. But before we get to that, if you were to give our listeners sort of some basic takeaways about what they need to do to help drive this change, I think you make some important points about it in the book. So you want to quickly speak to that issue? Yeah. The main thing is to kind of change your outlook because mm -hmm. it, it's in America, it's a very individualistic society. Mm -hmm. We're brought up to regard our own choices mm -hmm. as dictating things that affect us. And that trickles down to climate change. We're told you have to consume in such a way. You have to be <laughs> conscientious about which products you're buying, which reusable bags, what kind of car you're driving, and all these individual things that ultimately, even if you're perfect, isn't going to change the trajectory of climate change because we're each only one person trying to deal with a systemic problem. Right. We need something greater than that. We need a movement, grassroots organizing to actually put pressure on the political system that can make the kind of systemic change that will ultimately reverse the, the problem. And there's a lot to go into the psychology of that. That's very interesting, but long story short, work within your community, build solidarity with other people, and then use that momentum to push for the change that we all need. Perfect. Thank you. Well, if you're ready, I, I would really love to close with a reading from you. I just love the way you end the book. I think it, it, it sums things up so nicely. So uh, if you could give us a reading from page 268, I would love that. Absolutely. Saving the planet isn't really what we're trying to do with this strategy. To quote George Carlin, the planet isn't going anywhere. We are. <laughs> the Earth has already survived our worst-case scenario, where the poles completely melted, turned tropical, and flooded the continents. Life survived and was able to recover over time. Our choice is only whether or not we will still be here by preventing the flood in the first place. The final thing you need to do is not give up. Mm. It is all too easy to give in to a nihilistic despair when dealing with climate change. The problem is just so vast and we are each so small. This book was me trying to deal with that unpleasantness to prove to myself that there was still hope for us. I think there is. Nothing we have gone over has been technically insurmountable. The only barriers standing in our way are the arbitrary ones that society has erected against itself. It is much easier to change something arbitrary than alter the laws of physics, and we can't stop trying. We have to stay focused on the end state. Once climate change is dealt with, it will be done. Forever. There will be an escape from the continual anxiety it creates that will only grow worse if nothing is done. We will also reap the ancillary benefits of the transition once it is complete, from cleaner air and water to stability and protected biodiversity. You should always take heart knowing the effort is worth it.
That is the only way this works. No one is going to do this for us, so I want you to fight for it. Whatever time you can dedicate, dedicate it. Whatever passion you can muster, muster it. Whatever you can do, do it. Please. And that's how the book concludes. That is fantastic. Samuel Goodman, it has been such a pleasure having you on the program. I hope our listeners will consider reading the book Beyond Carbon Neutral, How We Fix the Climate Crisis Now. We all need a way out, and I really do think your, your text helps us get there. So thank you so much for doing it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've greatly enjoyed our conversation. All right. Stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar. I've got all kinds of ideas about how you can get engaged in sustainability right here in Louisville this week. So stay tuned, my friends. Down by the waterside Take our time Down by the waterside Got no worries and no worries Down by the waterside Good Lord We gonna set them And we are back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg. I hope you've got your calendars out and your pencils sharpened and are ready to get active for sustainability this week here in Louisville. Well, it is indeed election season and the voting has commenced, my friends. Yes, of course, the big election day is coming up on November 8th, but many of us have already begun voting and early voting starts this week. So I need you to go to GoVoteKY.com for all the information you need about how and where to vote and access a sample ballot for your precinct. With two constitutional amendments, uh, both U.S. and Kentucky congressional seats and nine candidates for Louisville mayor and every single judge on the ballot, you will most definitely want to do some research before you show up at the polls. I don't care how civically engaged you are, there is no way you can just show up cold and recognize all of these names and know who to vote for. So go find your sample ballot, first and most important thing, at GoVoteKY.com get ready to vote in-person excused absentee voting continues on tuesday and wednesday november 1st and 2nd from 8 30 a.m to 4 30 p.m at the jefferson county clerk election center there at 1000 east liberty street who qualifies for in-person excused absentee balloting well military or overseas voters a student who temporarily resides outside the county of his or her residence, voters who temporarily reside outside the state but are still eligible to vote here in Kentucky and will be absent from the county of their residence on Election Day, 
and during the days of no excuse in-person absentee voting, which we'll talk about in a minute, a voter or a voter's spouse who has surgery scheduled that will require hospitalization the day of an election and during the days of no excuse in-person voting, a voter who is in her last trimester of pregnancy, a voter who cannot appear during election day or no excuse in-person absentee voting due to age, disability, or illness and has not been declared mentally disabled by a court. Any person who is employed in a profession that is scheduled to work during all days and all hours, which shall include commute time. The polls are open on election day and no excuse in-person voting. And finally, uh, election officers tasked with the election administration for the current election cycle. So all of you <laughs> can vote early with in-person excused absentee voting on Tuesday and Wednesday, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at Jefferson County Clerk Election Center, 1000 East Liberty Street. Now, for the rest of us, anybody who is a registered voter here in Kentucky and can do in-person, no-excuse, absentee early voting, no reason to wait until Election Day if you've downloaded your sample ballot and know who you want to vote for, you can show up Thursday through Saturday, that's November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. at seven locations around Jefferson County. In Jefferson Town, you can go to the Jeffersonian there at 10617 Taylorsville Road. For folks in the West End, you can go to the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage, 1701 West Muhammad Ali Boulevard. You can also vote early out at Sun Valley Community Center, 6505 Bethany Lane. On Dixie Highway, you can vote at Mary Queen of Peace, 4017 Dixie Highway. You can vote at the Marriott East, 1903 Embassy Square Boulevard. You can vote early at the Kentucky Expo Center, Exhibit Hall A and B. That's at 937 Phillips Lane. Or right here in downtown, you can vote at Old Foresters Paris Town Hall, 724 Brent Street off of East Broadway. And that is all happening Thursday through Saturday from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. for anyone, no excuse necessary. And finally, Election Day voting will be on Tuesday, November 8th from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And you can find out where your poll is by going to GoVoteKY.com. All right, coming up this week, there is a No New Pipelines hike. You can join the Kentucky Student Environmental Coalition this coming Wednesday, November 2nd, for a hike out at Bernheim Forest. They'll be doing a site visit of where the proposed LGE pipeline is planned to go, which is currently the central focus of KSEC's No New Pipelines Working Group. They'll be meeting with local geologists to get a better understanding of how the landscape puts this pipeline in the path of landslides and flooding, making the inevitability of a leak or spill even greater. So come out to support the cause, learn about the pipeline, meet new people, and enjoy the fall colors of Bernheim. The hike will be from 2 to 4 p.m. on Wednesday. Participants should meet at the Playco System parking lot and wear sturdy shoes, long pants, and bring a water bottle. Uh, KSEC will be providing snacks. You can, uh, to coordinate carpools, email kystudentenvirocoalition at gmail.com. Now on Thursday, November 3rd at 6 p.m. on UofL's main campus, it's the 16th annual Ann Braden Memorial Lecture featuring Amani Perry 
on South to America. This is taking place Thursday at 6 in Strickler Hall, uh, Room 101. That's the big Middleton Auditorium on UofL's main Belknap campus. The 16th Annual Ann Braden Memorial Lecture will be delivered by Dr. Amani Perry, Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and a faculty associate with the programs in Law and Public Affairs, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and even Jazz Studies. Dr. Perry's lecture will be based upon her most recent book, South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation. As Perry demonstrates in her book, the foundations, changes, and tensions of the United States can be found when traveling to the American South. In her travels, including a stop right here in Derby City, Perry confronts history in the present through connections with human beings and their stories, inviting Southern identity as a tool of her own self-discovery and in overall reflections on its importance to the formation of America. This is free and open to the public with a book sale and signing to follow. You can learn more about Professor Perry and read her latest articles, as well as finding a link to register for the event at louisville.edu slash sustainability. No registration is necessary, though. Just coming out Thursday the 3rd at 6 p.m. Strickler Hall on UofL main, UofL's main campus, uh, Room 101. Now, the Project Warm Blitz is coming up this weekend, Saturday, November 5th, as well as the following weekend, Saturday, November 12th. This coming Saturday, volunteers will deliver free weatherization kits to families throughout Louisville. They are to pick up kits and a box breakfast supplied by Elgin E at Youth Build uh, and Project Warm. Then on Saturday the 12th, volunteers can come to Youth Build and Project Warm in teams of four to five to pick up buckets with supplies and a box breakfast. Afterwards, Blitz volunteers will drive to homes of seniors and people with disabilities to help weatherize their homes for the winter. And you can email Courtney at projectwarm.org or give her a call at 502-626-9276 for more information on how you can volunteer with Project Warm. Also coming up this Saturday, if you don't want to do that, there are a couple great volunteering events, three other great volunteering events. Brightside is hosting two different things on Saturday, November 5th. First of all, there'll be a community-wide tree planting day from 9 a.m. to noon, meeting up at the corner of 18th and Garland. November is one of the best time to plant new trees, and Brightside is holding their annual fall community-wide planting day on Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. We'll all meet up at the corner of 18th and Garland to plant 60 trees on Garland Avenue and Howard Street. I cannot wait. Bringing the total to approximately 100 new canopy trees planted for this fall. This planting will contribute to expanding Louisville's tree canopy, which helps improve our city's air, tackle climate change, and improve our own health. Bring a friend and come help us plant some trees on Saturday. It's rain or shine, and it involves physical labor, so please dress accordingly. And Brightside asks that volunteers be at least in high school. Uh, and, of course, under 18 requires a parent or guardian to be present. More information and sign-ups are at louisvilleky.gov. Just search for Brightside. And come on out Saturday the 5th from at 9 a.m. at the corner of 18th and Garland. Now, they're also hosting a Brightside Sweep and Sip on Saturday from at 11.30 a.m. at Against the Grain, 401 East Main Street. 
Our last event in this series will be held on Saturday at 11.30, and that's a change from their usual time. Uh, they'll be teaming up with YPAL to hold their cleanup at Against the Grain as part of the Unite Conference, so come out and help pick up literary around the a litter around the brewery and receive a special from Against the Grain on the house. Gloves and bags will be provided. More information, again, louisvilleky.gov. Search for Brightside. And also on Saturday, November 5th, maybe you could do all three of these things. It's a Phoenix Hill neighborhood tree planting hosted by Louisville Metro Parks from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, this is a series of Phoenix Hill tree plantings, and this one is meeting up at Madison and Campbell Streets again. Louisville Metro Parks invites you to join us for a fun afternoon of tree planting. We'll be planting 50 trees to make Louisville's streets a little greener. Tools and guidance will be provided by the Urban Forestry Team. Groups and families with school-aged children are welcome. In the event of rain, the project is going to take place on Sunday from 1230 to 3. All signed-up volunteers will be notified of any changes in advance, so sign up today using the My Impact app, and you can find the link for that at bestparksever.com. We're just coming out this Saturday, November 5th from 1 to 4 p.m., meeting up at Madison and Campbell Streets in Phoenix Hill. The Phoenix Hill series continues on the 19th. Be, these are all 1 to 4 p.m. on Saturdays. So on November 19th, they'll be meeting at Gray and Hancock on December 3rd at Liberty and Clay. And on December 17th at Liberty and Campbell. Learn more and sign up for all of that at bestparksever.com. Now, Sunday, November 6th, is the next meeting of the Kentuckiana Beekeepers Association. Their educational session with state apiarist. Tammy Horn Potter, former guest here on this program, the Kentucky State Apiarist, will be speaking on the state of beekeeping in Kentucky and the industry in general. They'll then be holding elections for the coming year, so please consider volunteering for a position as the club needs your help. You can learn more at kynabees.com. It's this Sunday, November 6th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Louisville Nature Center. Last thing I want to let you know about, you don't need to throw away your old jack-o'-lanterns or pumpkins from Halloween. Uh, if you don't have another place to compost them, well, UofL would be more than happy to. And we're having an election day pumpkin smash. So if you don't know what to do with your old pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns, well, don't trash them. Turn, to into, turn them into stress relief, worm food, and organic fertilizer. U of L is always here to help you compost. So drop off your old pumpkins and other plant-based fall decorations in front of the red barn right by the clock tower. There's a big pumpkin composting sign. You can drop them off anytime now through November 8th. And at noon on Tuesday, November 8th, we are all are invited to our annual pumpkin smash. You can uh, join in the composting fun and election day stress relief at noon right at the clock tower. Learn more at louisville.edu slash sustainability. And that is all the time we have for here on Sustainability Now. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.